Yeah, I'm going to leave the toy mic. It doesn't like me. It seems to react. I think Rich said I, he, he thinks I've got some shrapnel in my body somewhere that sort of sets it off. But uh, I think the only, can, the only thing I can think of is I've got a gold crown. So in my mouth. I haven't got one on my head. <laughs> I will have one day, yes. Yeah. Um, just to echo what Ivy said, um, it's just want to say thank you to those of you that do go and visit Hazel. Um, beginning of this year, I gave Hazel a diary for the year uh, with the instruction that everybody that comes and visits writes when they come. And it's great to look back and go, oh, so-and-so's been. Oh, so-and-so's been. Oh, so-and-so's been. So thank you for those of you that do go and visit. Really do appreciate it. Um, she said one of the things she 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 really does miss coming to church, and uh, uh, I was there on Thursday uh, Thursday afternoon just setting up so that she could listen to the sermons on her phone. Uh, you know, technology, she's good with technology, but when it goes wrong, she doesn't know how to fix it. So we 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 got there, and I think Adrian she really enjoyed. Where's Adrian? She really enjoyed listening to your your preach in her living room, which was great. Okay, so. Uh, we're carrying on with the seven letters that uh, are to the churches, the seven churches in Revelation. And uh, we, we've covered the church in Ephesus. Adrian uh, spoke about the, the letter to the church at Smyrna last week. And I'm going to cover the church at Pergamum. And I'll read the letter to you and then we'll begin to unpack what it says. It says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is Revelation 2 verse 12 if you want to follow. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Well, this city, uh, Pergamum, was the capital city of this province in uh, Asia Minor. It's now modern-day Turkey, and the, and the name of the uh, city has been renamed to a place called Bergama, similar to Pergamum, isn't it? Bergama. Uh, and it was a city that was on a hill rising a thousand feet above the valleys below. And its name means citadel or strong fortress. It also means 
parchment or paper. So it probably has a, its uh, roots in, in uh, authority and power. So I want to share three things this morning with us from this passage. And the first thing I want to talk about is this, this imagery of Jesus with this sword coming out of his mouth. It says, these are the words of him who has this sharp double-edged sword. And uh, this isn't a sword that's strapped to his waist or his belt. It says in, in uh, chapter 1 that it's coming out of his mouth. Strange imagery. So we're looking at apocalyptic writing, which is all about uh, picture language. And the first thing I want to say is is that these words, we need to remember that these are not the words of the writer of the letter of John. These are the words that Jesus told him to write down. So these are Jesus's words. They're spoken by him. John repeats this description he gave of the one like a son of man that he alludes to in the first chapter. The one he tells us that he fell down like a dead man before him. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And I want us to just unpack that sword a, a little bit this morning. Just to understand its significance. What this sword-like tongue is about that, that John sees. It does seem obvious, doesn't it? When somebody talks about a sharp tongue coming out of the mouth, there's going to be something significant, something special about the words that come from a mouth like that. Powerful and piercing words. They are going to cut the heart. They're going to do something. They're not going to fall on deaf ears. Now, some people... Uh, and I've been reading this week, some people compare this sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. This is imagery. It's not a real sword, okay? It's imagery. Um, Some people compare this sword to a a surgeon's scalpel that that intricately cuts into the flesh to uh, perform an operation, to, to, to aid recovery, you know, like a clinical incision on a sick patient to enable them to recover from perhaps heart surgery or cancer or something like that. But that is not the type of blade that is described in this, in this letter. That's not the type of thing that John describes. John describes a Thracian sword. And this sword is long. Okay, It's not a small handheld item this is something that you would wield with two hands it's got space to put both of your hands on the sword it's big it's long it is double-sided in fact it's razor sharp it's a lethal weapon in the hands of a trained warrior the only thing i can kind of uh compare it to would be like a samurai sword but it's not a samurai sword. It's, it's quite different. But it's like that length and that, that level of sharpness. With one thrust, this type of sword would go all the way through a man and come out the other side. It's that type of sword. It could slice 
an unprotected Roman soldier clean in half. It's that sharp. This is the type of weapon that John is describing that comes from Jesus' mouth. It would have no problem decapitating or chopping off limbs. That's how powerful this sword is. And that's what John sees coming out of Jesus' mouth. And so in the opening of this letter to the church of Pergamum, they should know that the author has a deadly serious message to give them. And he's not holding back. Has anyone ever been on the receiving end of somebody with a sharp tongue? <laughs> they don't mince their words, do they? When they're having a go. And they want to make their point. This church would be wise to listen and to take heed of what Jesus is going to say. This sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What that scripture is saying, what John is saying in that scripture is, Jesus is the Word. He's the final Word. Jesus has all authority to speak. Jesus' words are powerful. Can you understand, begin to understand the imagery of this sword? It's, it's words that speak power. Words that, when they're spoken, they bring change. They change hearts. They change attitudes. They change minds. They change situations because they are so powerful. They cut through the waffle and tell it how it is and how it's going to be. That's what powerful words do. I'm reminded of uh, the time that Jesus, uh, on the night of his arrest, they would have shared the meal in that upper room and then headed off to the garden to pray. And then there's that time where Judas comes with the crowd and the crowd are armed with swords and clubs. And Judas leads them and uh, they approach Jesus and Jesus says this, he says this, who is it that you want? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And this is, this is what Jesus said, I am he. And John tells us that when Jesus said, I am he, those three little words, I am he, he said the crowd with the clubs and the swords and the lanterns, it said that they withdrew and they fell to the ground. This is unarmed Jesus. And yet those three words floor people. People who'd come ready for a fight. People who'd come tooled up. With just three little words, Jesus has them falling face down before him. Not long after this, Simon draws his sword, doesn't he? And he cuts off that guy's ear in the garden. And Jesus says to him, says to Simon, put away 
your little sword. And Simon's sword was, it was a short sword. It wasn't this Thracian sword. Simon just had this short one that lopped off an ear. But the mouth of Christ, the words that come from Christ, can pierce the heart and the soul. His words are powerful. You know, creation happened because God said. He spoke it all into being. Let there be light. It was day and night. He spoke again and there was land and sea. He spoke again and there was fruit and veg. He spoke again and there was sun and moon, fish, animals, birds, man and woman, all spoken by God's word. Isn't that amazing? I'm taken to the time of Jesus when they're in the boat and he's asleep on a cushion. And the wind and the waves and the, the lake's all choppy and the disciples are frightened and they wake him up. And what does he say? Be still. Be quiet. And the wind and the waves submit to his words. That's the power of God's word coming from Jesus' mouth. I remember the lady who uh, was on her hands and knees. She'd got the issue of blood. She'd been bleeding for years. And she just reached her, out her hand to touch his garment. Matthew's gospel says this. Some gospels say that she was healed when she touched the garment. Matthew's gospel says that she was healed the moment he said, Daughter, your faith has healed you. That's the moment she was healed. When Jesus said it. When Jesus said she was healed, she was healed. Isn't that incredible? We think about the guy who was lowered down through that tiled roof on a mat by his four friends. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. It's at that moment that the healing is released. Man, his words are powerful. Hebrews 4 Verse 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active. These are not dead words. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing is hidden. And when Jesus sees it, when, when Jesus sees what's going on in this church, he has something to say about it in Pergamum. I'm sure he has things to say about this church and every other church up and down the, the country and across the world. There will always be something that Jesus will want to say to his church, whether it's to encourage or to rebuke. And it's important that we listen. It's important that we listen to him, to what he has to say. Because you know what? His voice can be drowned out by so many other things. His voice can be drowned out by the opinions of other people, even in the church. His voice can be drowned out by the media and all the other things that the world shoves in our face. The important thing is to listen to him, to know what he says. 
Yes, friends are helpful and they'll give us helpful advice. But there's nothing like hearing from Jesus himself. When was the last time that you responded to a word that God spoke to you? You know it's from him because it kind of it pierced you, it pricked you, it, it, it cut to your heart. It, it made you go, yes, that's definitely from Jesus. I remember a few years ago when I worked at John Lewis and uh, there was the whole debate about Sunday trading. And we were asked whether we would work on Sundays. And uh, it was something I wrestled with for a long time. Uh, but I wrestled no more once I'd heard God say to me, Dave, I don't want you to work on Sundays. That was all I needed, was for Jesus to say to me, Dave, I don't want you to work on Sundays, for me to go back to my boss and tell him I've made my decision. It's powerful stuff when we can stand on the word of God, being confident that he has spoken, that it's come from that double-edged sword. What would you, what would the double-edged sword want to cut through in your life this morning? Perhaps it's the doubts that we have. Or maybe it's the hurts. Maybe the, the, there's a cut needed to bring healing. Maybe there's a, he needs to cut out some stuff that's not doing you any good. Or maybe he wants to bring a cut like a surgeon's scalpel to bring healing. Maybe he wants to cut out that rejection, rejection or that, that jealousy. Perhaps he wants to cut through that laziness or unbelief. I don't know. Let God speak to you this morning about what he wants to say. You know, when the disciples were discouraged, when people were beginning to walk away from Jesus, Simon Peter asked this question. Or Jesus asked them this question. He said, do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. But Simon said this, he says, you have the words of eternal life. That's what Peter said to Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. Second thing I want us to focus on this morning is this, uh, this phrase that Satan has a throne in this city. Satan has a throne in this city. Jesus says, I know where you live. I'm coming round. <laughs> Put the kettle on. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I know all about the place and the conditions you're having to put up with and endure. This is what Jesus is saying. I know it's difficult, challenging and painful. It's not a walk in the park. You're living in enemy territory. And they were. When you read on, you can say, see that what was going on in this city is not good. They're living in enemy territory. In fact, Jesus says, Satan has a throne in your city. I mean, we often think about Jesus being on the throne, don't we? In all his splendor, in all of his heavenly glory. But to, for Jesus to say, Satan has a throne in your city? I don't think he's talking about a red devil figure with a forked tail and a pitchfork. He's not on about that. I think he's referring 
to the Roman authorities. That's what I think. He's referring to the power base at Pergamon. In this city, there was an evil power and authority that had not submitted to godly rule. Corrupt government. People who were domineering and controlling. Ungodliness ruled in this city. Apparently this city, Pergamum, is the capital city. It was the official centre for emperor worship. Emperor worship. So you can imagine that the place was filled with temples and idols and, uh, and things to bow down to and to worship which were created by man's hands. They weren't God. There would be Greek temples and ancient Roman gods. Apparently Zeus, the Roman god, uh, the god of gods, was quite prevalent in this city. So for these Christians, it would have been like living in a city where they were completely outnumbered. by a people who didn't hold to their faith, who were hostile to their faith. And, and you know, we can, we can look around the world today and see where that still happens. You know, I looked at um, Open Doors, the charity that uh, looks after or tries to support the, the persecuted church around the world. And, and these are the five top countries in the world today, where Christians are persecuted. So number five on the list is Pakistan. And in Pakistan, Christians uh, can be falsely accused of blasphemy. They can be denied education and they can be denied work opportunities. And even churches are blown up by explosives. That's how bad it can be for Christians living in Pakistan. In Libya, which is number four, uh, churches are forbidden. You can't have church. Right? You can't have church. Christian migrants are often executed or sold into slavery. That's happening today. Number three on the list is Somalia, where Christians can be killed on the spot. If you're a Christian, forget it. You're out of here. Owning a Bible means execution. Just owning a book like this means execution. Number two is Afghanistan, where Islamic extremism is everywhere. Christians have to hide, and they even have to bury their loved ones as Muslims to protect the family that, that, that survives. And the top of the list, which most of you will probably know, is North Korea, where leaders are worshipped like gods. This, this is what was happening in Pergamon. Leaders were worshipped like gods. There's no freedom. People live under constant surveillance. It's estimated that between 50 and 70,000 Christians are imprisoned because of their faith. 
And yet, in all of these countries, people are still coming to Christ. People are still praying. People are still worshipping. People are not denying Christ. In fact, even if they have to suffer, they still speak up for Christ. People are coming to Christ through the razor-sharp word of God. And often they're coming to faith through dreams. They see Jesus in dreams and respond in a bit like John in Revelation. Although his wasn't a dream, he was in the spirit. He saw a vision. It wasn't a dream. <clears throat> How are we doing? We're getting there. Jesus knows where they live. He knows where all these people live. He knows Pakistan, Libya, Somalia. He knows them all. And he knows that they're not denying his name. I wonder how you and I would react if our faith was put under that kind of danger, of abuse, of threats, of violence, of being excluded from educational work, of being put in prison or being killed. How would we hold up under that? Hold up under that pressure. It even says in, in, in the letter to the church, it says Jesus knew about this guy called Antipas who was put to death under uh, the Roman emperor Nero. It was, it's traditionally believed that Antipas was the bishop of Pergamum and that he was put to death in a brazen bull. And, and that what that means is there's this bronze-shaped bull which they put the person in and they set fire to it and so they basically cook to death that's what happened to him and these people in Pergamon had witnessed that they'd seen it or they'd heard about it or they knew Antipas and yet they still they still professed Christ as Lord They remained true to Jesus. They did not renounce their faith. They did not deny him. I wonder how many of us, having seen and witnessed terrible things like that, would be willing to still stand up for Jesus. It's almost we don't, we don't understand that kind of persecution, do we? We get upset if the tea's not right, or it doesn't sound quite right, or we haven't, we haven't got it all, we haven't all got it tickety boo or... Uh, there's not enough hand sanitizer or uh, do you know what I mean we have to keep it in perspective sometimes don't we what about us even in the midst of terrible suffering how can we remain faithful to Jesus even when we're disappointed even when we're lonely even when we're in pain Jesus knows where we live. He knows all about our situation. Let us remain faithful to him. I'm learning to sing a little bit quieter on days when I have to preach because I seem to use up all of my voice on the singing and then when it comes to preaching, it's gone. Third thing, we're nearly there. Third thing Jesus talks about is false teachers. False teachers. He says this, your uh, church, you've been through some testing times. You're doing well under immense opposition. You've not denied me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there's always, there's always that word, isn't it? Nevertheless, I've got something I want to. It's a bit like going to a review, isn't it? Like, uh, 
you know, your boss calls you in and he, oh, you're doing well on this, you're doing well on this, you're doing well on this. But then, the, however, you could do better on this. It's a bit like that. Nevertheless, however, I have a few things against you. What? We've stood up against opposition. We've, 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 we're still here and you've got things. Yes. Jesus says, you've got two groups in your church that you've not challenged or confronted. You've not challenged or confronted. Now, we need to know that the letter is addressed to the angel of the church. And uh, some interpretations, it says leader. It's the leader of the church. It says you leaders have not confronted people. You've allowed people who hold to two types of false teaching to have influence in the church. That's serious, isn't it? If it's been allowed, if it's not been confronted. <clears throat> and there's two types. First type is the teaching of Balaam. And you can read about this perhaps in, your, in the week uh, from Numbers 22 to 25. Um, this is a guy called Balaam who, uh, who taught Balak to uh, influence the Israelites. Uh, I, won't, I won't go into that, it will take too long. But uh, it's got some great bits. It's got a talking donkey in there. It's got some fantastic. I, I, I highlighted in my Bible this week the talking donkey because it, it just it's fantastic. And uh, we, we've, we've got a couple of. So Balaam is on his way to Balak uh, because he's been summoned. And he's riding there on his donkey. And uh, in front of the donkey, Balaam can't see, is the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn and the donkey decides that he's not going any further okay so three times the donkey you know, lays down or presses him against the wall and uh, Balaam starts to bash his donkey hit his donkey he starts to be cruel to his donkey what's going on and uh, finally uh, and, the, and he has a conversation with the donkey this would be good good to chat about this at coffee cake and chat on Tuesday Bob talk about talking donkeys um and then eventually the Lord opens Balaam's eyes to the angel of the Lord. So, yeah, bit of a side sweep there. But, uh, yeah, Balaam uh, is, goes on to do some false teaching with, these, uh, with this guy called Balak, and which, which does influence the Israelites, and they begin to indulge in uh, sexual immorality with women outside of uh, their, their people. So you can read all about that. The second lot of the Nicolaitans, uh, and this is uh, uh, also mentioned in the first letter to the church at Ephesus. And, and Jesus says this, he said he hates the practices of the Nicolaitans. That's a strong word, isn't it? Hate. Jesus hates the practices of these people. Both of these groups were a bad influence on the church. They had compromised their freedom in Christ and mixed it with pagan society. They had taught that their spiritual liberty gave them leeway to worship idols and indulge in sexual immorality. So basically they were saying, oh, I'm free to do what I like. I mean, I'm a, Jesus has set me free, therefore I can do whatever I like. That's what they were doing. And it, it was impacting that church. 
Those gripped by Balaam's teach, false teaching were easy pickings for those who could tempt and entice Christians to mix faith with the seductive trappings of the world. I wonder how that plays out today with Christians who come to church, worship the Lord Jesus Christ, take communion, then on Monday morning are doing everything and anything that the world seems to think is acceptable. Those wedded to the Nicolaitans were vulnerable to their manipulating, domineering and controlling ways. That group of people were okay with the occult and black magic arts and all that sort of thing. A pick and mix kind of religion or faith. And they were in the church. A bit like today, isn't it? Not not here today, but you know, our world. That there are people in churches who are dabbling in those sorts of things and think it's okay to just come and take the bread and the wine and then go off and do Ouija boards and all that sort of thing. It's not on. One foot in the church while the other foot's in the world. My friends, this is not acceptable Acceptable for God's people. Jesus uses that strong word. He hates it. He hates those practices. He cannot stand it. He will not put up with it. He will expose it. So what does Jesus do? He says, repent. Repent of this. And he's talking to the leaders of the church. Repent. Do something about it. Don't allow this to keep happening. You've got to deal with it. You know, Jude has quite a lot to say about false teaching. So does 2 Peter. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to read uh, from them. You know, what it highlights is the importance of community, of godly community, where there is accountability, where we uh, are looking out for one another. We need to be careful of what we take in and what we accept as the truth. You know, the internet is great, isn't it? But it's also a danger. Just because somebody tells you something doesn't mean to say it's true. Just because we read it doesn't mean to say that it's it's going to do us any good. We need to check things out. It's why we, you know, it's important to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to support one another. Okay, I'm winding up to the final thing. So Jesus, has, we've talked, we looked at Jesus' penetrating words from his mouth. We've uh, looked at that, that suffering. We've looked at these false teachers. Um, what Jesus promises towards the end here is a reward. He promises a reward for those who are overcome. And he calls it hidden manna and a white stone. And uh, I don't think we fully know exactly what those things are. There's a lot of, there'll be people that will uh, be on YouTube, there'll be people who've written books about all these sorts of things, but I'm not sure anybody really knows for sure. But as I draw to a close, it, it wouldn't be right for me to miss out on these on these promises that, that that Jesus makes to this church so that we can follow in their footsteps. There's a promised reward for those who overcome. For those who overcome despite where they live and the conditions they have to tolerate for those who overcome even in the face of harsh suffering and persecution there's a reward for those who overcome opposition 
and remain faithful to Christ, even to the point of death. He promises a reward for those who will not give in to the teaching that leads people astray. He promises a reward for those who will not compromise on their need to surrender all to Jesus. He promises a reward for those who will listen to his words and take action. Verse 17, to him who overcomes, I will give some hidden manner. I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, known only to him who receives it. Hidden manner, well, that's likely a reference to God being the one who provides heavenly, spiritual food, just like he did in the desert to the Israelites. You know, when he reigned, when they complained, and he rained, they, he rained down food every day to sustain them. Psalm 78, 24 to 25 says, I rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. It was like an endless supply. They couldn't store it because it perished, and then he'd give them a new set each day. You know, God's word needs to be new, fresh every day, fresh bread from heaven. God promises this hidden manner, this spiritual food to sustain these people through their difficult times, through their trials. And what of the white stone? Well, in ancient Greek culture, it was common practice to give people stones. They were kind of like tokens uh, to reward people. And uh, so it may be that Jesus is alluding to that. Winners uh, of uh, the games were often given white stones with a name on as a reward uh, for entry into a celebration. So maybe this white stone is, a, is a, an encouragement, a, an encouragement to keep going, to keep pressing on despite the trials, and you will receive the reward. Isaiah 62 verse 3 says, uh, The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name and the mouth of the Lord, that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. You will be called Hepzibah and your land Beulah. Both of those words, Hepzibah means delight. You won't be deserted or desolate. You will be a delight. And you will be no longer single or on your own. You will be married. Married to Jesus. Perhaps this white stone with a new name engraved on it is a reward that Jesus will give to those who overcome, that enable them to enter the wedding feast and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's look forward to that day where Jesus gives us that reward. And in the meantime, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's not be swayed 
Let's not be discouraged. Let's not bow down to those who would seek to manipulate or corrupt us. Let us remain true to Jesus, our sovereign Lord. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word changes us. And Lord, do we need changing? And I want to pray this morning that each one of us would have received something from you. You're a generous God. You're going to give us a white stone. I pray today you'd give us something in the meantime. Lord, you'd, you'd drop something into our hearts and minds to, to chew on this week. Something to grapple with. Something that will cause us to perhaps repent of wrong thinking or doing things wrong. May you speak words of eternal life into our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen.